0: I'm no longer muted. There we go. All right. As I was saying, if you didn't catch that, my name is Perry. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Really good to be with you. Hey, we're one week out. Everybody doing okay? Thinking about Christmas coming up in just one week. What? I wonder, what's your outlook on this coming week? Are you excited for it? Okay, good. Anybody not excited for it? I think your outlook on this week is probably related to the experience of peace that you anticipate having. Peace can be elusive. It can be hard to come by. Ahaz knew this. Ahaz was having what you might call a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Ahaz is king of Israel, and Ahaz is just gotten the word that's on the streets of Jerusalem that a couple of nations are about to attack him they're coming in and their sole objective together is to help him find a new line of work and as this word circulates throughout the streets of Jerusalem in the coffee shops and about in the the newspapers and everything It says that the response of the people and Ahaz himself is this in Isaiah chapter seven, verse two, it says the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're terrified. They're frightened because they know that this enemy is the same enemy who on a previous occasion had come in and also caused a lot of damage before. And the promise here is that they're going to come and do the same again. There's a backstory to all of this. There's a lot of details here that's easy to get lost in. I'm going to try to be as clear and short as I can be. But if you go back to the high, the heyday, the high watermark of Israel, you'd go back to about 1000 BC when David is the king of Israel. And then his son Solomon also enjoyed great prosperity, great affluence, great abundance. But then Solomon, it is said in God's word, loved many foreign wives, and he didn't just accommodate their worship of other gods, but he actually participated in it. He facilitated it, and as he did that, he led the hearts of his people astray, and so as God's judgment, following his reign, the kingdom was split in half. There was a revolt, and a majority of the nation went to form its own nation, that oftentimes is referred to in the Bible as just simply Israel. And then the southern part, the area in and around Jerusalem, where centuries later Ahaz is on the throne, had the name Judah. In our text this morning, though, in Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to hear not the word Israel for that northern part, but it's going to be the name Ephraim. Ephraim is just another tribe of that area. And the reason that's relevant is because Ephraim is one of the two nations that is about to, or is rumored to be on the verge of attacking Ahaz in Jerusalem. The other nation is Syria. So Ahaz, hearing these rumors, has decided that his best form of diplomacy could be summed up in the phrase, the enemy of my enemy must be my friend. And so he reaches out to a common enemy of these other two nations, the Assyrian Empire. It's an even bigger bully And Ahaz's hope is that these Assyrians would help him. Okay, like I said, that's a lot of backstory, a lot of explanation. If you didn't catch any of it, let me summarize. Ahaz is a king in Jerusalem and he's about to be attacked and he's really scared. Okay, that's the summary of what's going on here. His, he's shaking, and the people of the fort, people of, of in the streets of Jerusalem, are also shaking like trees of the forest as they would shake before the wind. Now let's keep reading and get into verse three, chapter seven of Isaiah. It says this, and the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son Sheer Jashub." And meet him at the washer's field. What this is, is this is the water supply for Jerusalem. A king would go out and check the water supply because when you think you're about to be attacked, your city is probably going to be laid under siege. And so nothing is going to come into the city. And the thing that will determine how long you can live in that state is your water supply. Soon as the water runs out, it's game over. So Ahaz is checking the water supply And he says, deliver this message to him. But it's this curious fact about bring your child with you. The name literally means a remnant will return. I have no idea if Isaiah and his wife one day were just flipping through the names that people are calling their babies and decided, hey, let's go with this one, a remnant will return. But on this occasion, we see that a little child plays a really big role through his name. We're gonna see that again. As we keep reading in here, but the message is to Ahaz, Hey, if things do not change course, only a remnant will return. But the message that Isaiah has is ultimately a message of hope. It's down here in these words, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And we'll just stop right there in the middle of the statement. What? Ahaz is being asked to do is to adopt a perspective that does not make sense based on what he's hearing, the rumors, and based on what he's seeing with his eyes. But this is precisely what God is calling him to believe. He's calling him to adopt a different perspective because God's perspective is often at odds with our own. Think about your own experience in life of times when you have been fearful, And think about as you're able to look back on those situations now and see how, what happened, what came out of those situations, how maybe your perspective now would be different than what you had then. This is an opportunity for Ahaz to take God's perspective. Why? Because God already knows the future. He already knows what's going to happen, how this is going to turn out. And he's saying, you can stand down. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid because these two raging infernos are actually just like the embers of a campfire that's about to extinguish itself. They're just going out. This is God's perspective that's meant to give him peace, but he cannot have it unless he accepts it. So we keep reading on, and Isaiah just summarizes the rumors that have been circulating that these two nations are coming in, these two kings, and they want to replace him with another king known as the son of Tabeel. And they want to put him on the throne in place of Ahaz because they want this, this throne. They want Judah's participation in their own alliance against the Assyrians. But he says this, we already know about this, but it shall not stand. This plan of theirs will not come to pass. Why? Because the head of this nation, Syria, is just the capital. It's Damascus. And the head of that city is merely this human being, this king named Rezin. And not only that, but if you think about Ephraim, this country to the north that used to be a part of Israel, within 65 years, they will be shattered from even being a people. God is giving this insight that only he has, but he's sharing it willingly with Ahaz because he wants Ahaz to have the right perspective as he faces this threat. The head of Ephraim is the capital city, Samaria, and the head of Samaria is just the son of Remaliah. Isaiah won't even mention his name because he's such a scoundrel, but he just mentions he's the son of Remaliah. And then this is the key point, the clincher for him and for us. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is where peace comes from. Peace comes from the alternate perspective on life that God gives us of reality, of what's going on. And then it comes from faith that God is the one who knows the future and can take care of our present. This is the call to faith that Ahaz is being presented with graciously from Isaiah's mouth. And it's a call to us this morning too. And whatever we're facing, whatever kind of thing might be robbing or threatening our level of peace, this is a call. If we're not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. I think of the words that were written much after the fact here, centuries later from James. But James says that whoever doubts is like a wave of the sea that's tossed and blown by the wind. The ultimate instability in our life is caused from a lack of faith. But the ultimate stability that we can have in life is caused by a firm faith. And that is the invitation to us as well in our own lives. But God also knows something else about this situation. He knows that Ahaz does not have a habit or a pattern in his life of being a man of faith. Instead, Ahaz's pattern is to be the kind of guy who takes matters into his own hands. Can you believe somebody might do that? He's the kind of guy who wants to respond by taking control of the situation, coming up with his own plan, his own scheme, and then devising a way out of it. That's why he's appealing to Assyria for help. So God graciously steps things up another level, and he offers to help boost up Ahaz's faith. By giving him a sign. This is what we read. Keep going. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Need to work on my gestures there. Deep or as high. It's anything. Ask for anything. Ask for fireballs to go shooting across the sky. Ask for the Broncos to finally win a game. Whatever it might be. I will give it to you to boost up your faith. And then Ahaz, he sounds so spiritual here. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds so righteous. There is a case in which we can put the Lord to the test and it's not good. Whenever we would say, God, I'll, I'll believe if you'll do this. We give God the terms, the conditions for our faith. That's a problem. But here, God is graciously reaching out and saying, I know you're not a man of faith. I know this is not the pattern and the habit of your life, but if you will only believe, then you can live at peace. And here, I'll give you a sign. So ask anything, ask whatever you want. But Ahaz is in a deep predicament. If he asks for a sign and then God follows through, because if he does, then he knows. His stubbornness, his hard heartedness, will be even more obvious to everyone. So Ahaz turns down the offer and Isaiah then is angry. He says, hear then, O house of David. Isaiah is no longer just speaking to Ahaz. It's like he's lining up all of the kings of the past from Ahaz back to David. And he's rebuking them all for their lack of faith. And he's saying, is it too little for all of you to weary men that you weary my God also? Because of the way that you ruled, because of the way that you reigned, you subjected the people underneath you to things that they did not need to be subjected to. You were not a blessing. You were a curse to them. Is it not enough for you to do that, that you would also do the same thing to God, that you would frustrate him, that you would anger him? You don't want a sign, but I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And here's what Isaiah says. Therefore, the Lord will give you this sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us you keep reading, it says, before this boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay, we don't often think of this phrase connected with the phrase down here, but what's going on in Isaiah 7 is that this child is going to be born. Again, children play a big role and their names are highly significant in this passage. But this child is going to be born in the land of these two kings that are now so fearful. But by the time this child is born and by the time this child grows, the land will be desolate as will be reflected in the kind of food he eats. The reference here is to a land that's not cultivated, but a land where all you do is just keep an animal alive for the milk that it can provide and you get honey out of the honeycomb from the bees that are in the area. This land will be desolated and this child's life will somehow be assigned to you. Notice this is not a happy, nice, calm setting, but this is said in somewhat of a rage. It's the judgment of God through the mouth of his prophet to the stubborn king who will not have faith in the one true God. And then in verse 17 is the clincher here. It says, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, this northern part, departed from Judah back after Solomon's reign. Something is coming that's going to be of the same kind of tragic magnitude, and it's called the king of Assyria. You thought the enemy of your enemy could be your friend. It turns out the enemy of your enemy is even a bigger enemy. This scheming that you came up with, your own wisdom from a human perspective is going to backfire dramatically on you and on all of your people. And because of that, you will suffer, the people will suffer, and this is the consequence that whenever we turn our back on God, we turn our back on our one true source of peace. Peace comes through faith in the perspective that God offers and in the truth that he proclaims about our lives and about our situation. Ahaz will have nothing to do with it, though. Okay, that's a lot. That's dense. There's a lot going on, a lot of details. I hope you've been able to follow somewhat, or maybe I've just given you a great nap. But this is the message that whenever we turn our backs on God, We turn away, we walk away from our one true source of peace. And this is the consequence that Israel, that Ahaz, and that so many people throughout history have experienced, as they've also turned their backs on God. Instead, trusting in their own wisdom, their own reason, and their own perspective on life. If this is the reason for Israel's exile that would eventually come, We're going to flip a few pages to the right now to Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to see the result of that exile, what happened in the midst of that exile, Isaiah chapter 42. And as we turn there, we're going to see this language that Isaiah uses that is reflected in the fact that Isaiah throughout the book has been referring to his people, the people of Israel as God's servant. They are a servant in the sense that God has called them, raised them up, going all the way back into ancient days with Abraham. And he's raised them up for this very purpose that they would be a people who would do his work in the world, who would proclaim to the nations what it looks like to walk in the right relationship with the one true God, to be a people who in the midst of all of the threats and all of the fears of this world would live in peace. But because of their lack of faith, They're just like the nations. And God, who is with them, has sent them to Babylon. Here's what's said about this servant. says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one and blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees so many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Look at the repetition of these words here of deaf, blind, deaf, blind, blind. It's all over that you are somebody who is not seeing, who is not hearing, who is not responsive to the wonderful things that God has done. If you just think through an inventory of all of the things that they have witnessed, it's incredible. God delivering them up out of slavery, out of Egypt, parting the waters, performing miracles in the wilderness that would provide for them and that would display his presence among them in the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. They had seen so many things, but it's like it's for no good because they are blind, they are deaf. Keep going. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. The law that was given through Moses was meant to be a tremendous blessing because it revealed who God was. It revealed who Israel was as his people. And it revealed what it looked like to walk in a right relationship with him. But yet they squandered it. This is a people who now are plundered and looted. They're all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons because they're in bondage. They become plunder with none to rescue. There's no one to back them up. There's no one to rescue them. There's no one to say, hey, let's restore it all. Keep going. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was this some scheme of a great oppressor in the Babylonian kings? No, 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 no. This was the Lord. The Lord did this against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey. Go on. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. This is harsh language. This is the verdict. This is the assessment of God's faithless people. This is over 100 years after Ahaz's life. But this is like, this is tough to read and even tougher to actually think about what the meaning of this kind of language must be. This is a consequence of Emmanuel, of God with us because this is a God who cannot be snowballed. This is a God who knows everything, the motivations of our heart, the words of our mouth, thoughts of our mind, our actions with our hands and with our feet. This is a God who knows all. Is Emmanuel a good thing or a bad thing? It depends. When we look at this situation, we can see this is only bad news. When we turn our backs on God, we walk away from our one true peace. Praise God that when we turn our backs on God, that he comes toward us with his grace. When we turn our backs on God, we can only pretend that he's not there. And his presence could just be a terror to our lives. But as we keep reading in Isaiah 43 now, verse 1, we see this glorious picture of a turn reflected in two words, but now. But now. These are two of the most important, grace-filled words in all of Scripture. It could be and now. If it was and now, we would think, and now God has decided, decided to revoke all of his promises. And now Israel had crossed the final line of disobedience. And now God was going to move on to a new people, knowing that these people are way too stubborn to be of any hope, to be of any good. This servant deserves nothing but to be wiped out forever. That's and now. But this is but now. Throughout this series, if we back up for a second, I hope you've seen the but now in all of these weeks that we've looked at out of Isaiah. We saw that there's darkness that pervades the world, but now through Christ, there's a light. We've seen the dead stump in front of us with no hope, but then We see God taking action so that but now there's a new branch that's sprouting up, bearing fruit above. We've seen the terror and the just complete devastation of these people whose leaders have not been a comfort to them, but we see that God brings up the shepherd who is good and offers comfort to his people in a place and in a situation of no comfort. And here, We see that the God who is with us is a God who offers this glimmer of hope as well. In these words, but now. We turn to Matthew's gospel. We see this, the famous setting of Joseph discovering that this wife who he's supposed to be married to is pregnant. And as Joseph is thinking about how he could just quietly divorce her, says that he considered these things. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Notice how fear is all all over the place in these passages. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people for their sins. That's what his name means. And then we keep going and we get the reference to Isaiah. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But now, but now. If you look at the language of John's gospel, he puts it this way, using slightly different imagery, but he just says that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. But now, as we see, but now, Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. We might still want to duck and cover a little bit because we've just read about this burning anger of the Lord. And we might just think that here it comes, prepare to meet your maker. But instead, this is what we see. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. He's saying, this whole thing your whole existence was my idea i know you've fallen on your face time after time after time again that there's no reason for me to love you and accept you and to welcome you but guess what i've called you by name you are mine a human dad at this point might say i'm sorry you've crossed the line one too many times you've let us down for the nth time, and we just, we cannot tolerate it anymore. So don't call, don't write. I wish you well, but we're not going to talk again. This God says, "No, no, 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 you're mine. I have your name. I created you. You're my idea. We'll keep going into the next verse when you pass through the waters i'm going to be with you just like i was with your ancestors as i led them up through the waters out of egypt out of oppression out of slavery i'm leading you up and i will be with you in those difficult parts of your life they will not overwhelm you when you walk through fire fire was from the anger of god's judgment just a couple of verses ago but now god's people are going to be shielded From the fire of God's anger. Why? Because the Lord is with them. He is the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Okay, keep going. And they're of such value that I would exchange other nations for you. That's how important you are to me. There's no price I would not pay, no cost I would not be willing to fork over because you are so valuable to me. Now let's be very clear on what's going on here. At the end of Isaiah 42 and where we're at now in 43, nothing had changed on Israel's part. They hadn't suddenly dusted themselves off, picked themselves back up and made another go at it. They hadn't hadn't suddenly learned how to straighten up and fly right. Nothing had changed on their part. They are still wallowing in bondage, wallowing in the consequences of their own rebellion, their own lack of faith. But as you think about your own life, consider this. God knows everything about you. The fact that Emmanuel is with us means that Emmanuel knows it all. Think of your life. Think of the things that you've said, the things you've done, the things that you would undo if given the opportunity. God knows all of your secrets. What do you think he thinks about you? This is what he says because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I would do these things for you. You're precious. You are honored. God loves you. Do you think about that when you think about yourself? This is the true identity of who we are. As we follow Jesus, we are precious, we are honored, and we are loved by God. And then he says, Fear not again, for Emmanuel, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and whom I made. These words begin with, I have created you. I've called you by name. I formed you. And they end with this glorious purpose here. We see that from verse 1 to verse 7 of 43, we see the purpose of our lives The purpose that God has for who we are. He created us for this, that we might reflect and bring Him glory. We are the ones that He formed, we are the ones that He made. True peace comes from having our identity wrapped up in these words. True peace comes from knowing that when we experience the waters and the flames of life, the difficulties, the struggles, the things that might cause us fear, that he is with us in those things. I love hearing the stories that I hear from time to time of people who have gone through incredible, painful seasons in their life. Could be physical, could be relational, could be of any kind. And those people who love Jesus often have the testimony that in the midst of that crisis, they experience the presence of God in a way they've never experienced it before. I just think that's amazing. That is incredible. This is the God who goes through the waters, who goes through the flames with us. That's where peace comes from. And it's a peace that is rooted in God's purpose for our lives. Knowing that the things that can just blindside us in life, the things that seem like Who's in control of this world? The things that just knock us off of our game cannot knock us out of God's purpose for our lives. That God has a purpose, that God has made promises that no one can remove from us. No detail, no circumstance can change those. Our ultimate final assurance is guaranteed because Christ has made it secure for us on, his, on the behalf of the glory of God. This is where peace comes from from placing our faith in those realities, in this truth, from adopting this perspective that's given to us by faith. You know, as I was going through in preparation for this sermon this week, I I just had this verse that kept echoing through my own mind and my own heart. And it's really based off of the fact that this chapter began with those two words, but now. But it's another but statement from Romans chapter five. says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we still needed somebody to rescue us, while we were still demonstrating our own faithlessness and our own rebellion against God, Emmanuel came in the flesh and died for us. This is the wonder of his love. Do you have peace? My hope is that as we hear these words and are reminded of this truth, that it would stir up the faith in us, the kind of faith that we need that comes from the peace of the God who loves us and the son of God who gave his life for us and is with us even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glories of your grace, for the fact that you would do this on our behalf when we deserve none of it, or that the only thing we have done is fail, that we have nothing to contribute to our relationship with you apart from your grace. So God, thank you for doing what we are powerless to do on our own. Thank you, Lord, for coming down in the flesh into this world so that we might know you and we might experience your presence with us even in this moment today in this room. God, I pray that for any of us who lack that faith, Lord, that you would give it to us by your grace. And Lord, may we be people who walk in peace knowing that the Prince of Peace has come and is with us now. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray these words. Amen.